The American Council of Blind Lions, ACBL, is the affiliate that roars, and that's no lion. ACBL holds monthly conference calls and ACB convention events that help people who are blind or visually impaired become more involved in local Lions Clubs. Find out more. Call 502-897-1472 or email lions.acb at gmail.com. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good morning, everyone. This is Christy Crespin coming to you from Highland, California. Welcome to this last day of summer on September 21st. And we are discussing People of Vision, A History of the American Council of the Blind by James J. McGivern and Marjorie L. McGivern, copyright 2003 by the American Council of the Blind. We are now on Chapter 10, which is 1989 to 1995 New Opportunities. However, I would like, before we start discussing uh, Chapter 10, to get people's thoughts regarding Chapter 9, any kind of things that we didn't discuss or just after reading Chapter 10, kind of new uh, insights or thoughts about uh, Chapter 9. Uh, but before we do that, I would like to welcome Larry Gassman as our streamer. Thank you, Larry. And I would like to welcome Andrea DeClotz as our host and ask Andrea to uh, please give the information about raising hands, etc. Thank you, Andrea. Absolutely. No problem. Uh, to raise your hand on the PC is Alt-Y. To mute on the PC or unmute, these are, these are both raising hand and muting are toggles. To uh, mute or unmute is Alt-A. These are for the PC. Mm-hmm. On the Mac, to raise your hand, Option-Y. To mute or unmute, command shift A. On the landline phone, to raise your hand is star nine. To mute, unmute is star six. And on your smart device, uh, smartphone, tablet, uh, lower right-hand corner under the more tab to raise your hand, lower left-hand corner, uh, you should have a mute or unmute button depending on your uh, status. Thank you, Christy. All right. Thank you. So, uh, just thinking about uh, Chapter 9, I kind of would like to address that, you know, we we have lost so many of our leaders. um, And this is, you know, continues in in Chapter 10. Um, And we're... We're now to the to the point where uh, it's almost a new generation of ACB. Many of our uh, founders have gone before us, and uh, a lot of th- a lot of things are are taking place. 
Um, you know, the eighties, it's just kind of interesting to, to think about, uh, I know when I was growing up, I thought, wow, we are so avant-garde in the eighties. And it's, it's so interesting to think about how far back that is now. Any hands, Andrea? No, not right at the moment. No thoughts about, uh, about chapter nine? Yes, my hand is up. Okay. Larry, go ahead. Thank you. Um, <laughs> oh, there, oh, Larry, I'm sorry. I didn't even look at you. <laughs> I get that feeling and impact from a lot of people. So, <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, the last several times you've asked that questions about various chapters, I've always talked about the fact that we're getting out under the sh- out from under the shadow of NFB. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their people, um, in many respects, never recognized what ACB was or had become. And when you're talking about the 80s, we're now 30 years, actually 20 years, from from that point where ACB decided to get out from N- NFB. And they started their own organization. And, it, and it, I think the 1980s, I mean, the growing pains continued for 10 to 20 years. And I think in the 1980s, we finally got to the point where we said, we are now strong enough, both financially and administratively, that we can do this. And we're not learning based on and, uh, mistakes we made with regard to NFB. We're learning on on our own ideals, maybe some of our own mistakes that we've made. But it, the foundation, I think, was really born um, after trial and error, after some really good people, leaders, started the process in, in the early 1980s. And we began to get more and more people, because more and more people found out about us, we got more and more people to join us in terms of uh, estate affiliates, as well as some of the special affiliates as well. Uh, and as, when we got into the early 1990s, it's true. A lot of the people who were with us back in the 50s and early 60s when ACB got its start were elderly and passed away and Derwick McDaniel in 94 and more since then. And now it's not what – when we get into trouble, it's not like, well, what did so-and-so do? Or we, Because we can't ask them anymore. They're gone. And so it's, a, it's to the point now where it starts where, okay – We've, we've got a foundation of 30 years. Now we need to begin to build on that more and figure out, okay, what do we do based on our own history, which has become our own history, uh, because we're it now. And, and now, of course, that's even more evident than other, uh, than before, because we don't really have anybody who was around back then. They're pretty much gone. And so it, we make our own mistakes and we learn by our own mistakes. And it's a, it's a, it's an exciting time. And I, I'm fascinated to read about it, especially because I know a lot more of these people than I knew mm-hmm. from early on because I wasn't around. But I still know of them, and I know about them based on reading. So the, 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 even the 90s are more exciting times, 80s and 90s, for me, because I know a lot of these people. Thank you. That's the short version. <laughs> Thank you. I liken it to, you know... Um, you know, when we were younger, we could ask our parents, but when our parents are gone, we become the parents mm-hmm. and, and, and the cycle and the cycle just repeats itself. Any other hands, Andrea? 
Any other thoughts on chapter nine? Livy, come on. Do you have any thoughts about chapter nine? Well, I did read it, but it's been a while, so I've forgotten, and I've I've misplaced my cartridge. (laughs) So I've got to find it. And um, um, my mind's gone blank, so I'll just... I'll just listen today. Sorry about that, guys. No, that's okay. Okay. Anyone else for Chapter 9? All right. Then let's start talking about... Debbie Debbie Green has her hand up, Andrea. Oh, Debbie? Yep. Oh, Oh, yeah, she does. Okay. Go ahead, Debbie. Yeah, I just want to agree with with Larry about how, for me, uh, how exciting it is to to read... um, about some of the people that I actually know. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I think we have an incredible heritage. Um, and it just gives me uh, just a renewed respect for uh, some of the leaders that that laid the foundation for us. Mm-hmm. And how we can go forward now and build on that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Anyone else? All right. Then moving on to chapter, moving on to chapter ten. Hearing somebody's um, jaws. It's not mine. Um. So, um, in chapter ten, you know, I I think I was I was kind of. surprised you know i didn't know how many of our 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 folks actually like i was thinking about julie carroll i didn't know she was a lawyer i didn't know she had had you know passed the bar and i thought she was an administrative assistant or something and i would hear that name but I never realized the significance of, you know, of, of, of Kathy McGivern, who also was an attorney. And I, I'm just amazed at some of the gifts of the people that we have had in our organization. Um, in, in, Choosing James and Marjorie to uh, write our history, um, having, um, I, I guess her, her name was Kathleen, right? Kathleen McGivern? I, don't I think so. I believe so. Kathy, yeah. So was, is the sister of James. And um, it's just, Amazing to me, the connections, the networking and the connections. And then we have some little surprise uh, get-togethers and the audio-described wedding of of, uh, Dr. Fisher and his bride, Joanne. Um, Kind of interesting. The newness of some of the the, uh, things like the audio description. Uh, Nellie, do you remember going to the uh, 1993 
San Francisco convention where we went and protested in front of the um, Department of Transportation. And we held up those signs. Yes, I was I was there. Um, and uh, um, we were um, very unhappy about the lack of, um, you know, tactile um, um, protection on the uh, uh, train tracks uh, in, you know, various places. And uh, uh, just right before that, um, you know, a friend of mine, um, uh, Pamela um, um, Schneider, had fallen yeah. in the tracks and, and got killed by a train. And right. That was horrible. And there were a few incidents like that that happened around that time. Um, and these people were really good travelers. Yeah. But... Uh, there was no detection to to let anybody know in a tactile way with a cane or with a dog that you were too close to the edge. Things people take for granted now. Yes. And yes, there was a, was a tragic death in in um, Massachusetts the month before, and then yes, yes. the the night before the um, before our protest. Um, the second tragedy, and um, yeah, living that experience was kind of interesting because um, uh, I know my husband Ed, his supervisor, uh, because we made headlines, and his supervisor <laughs> brought it up to him when we he were came in the back paper. From, yeah, when he came back from vacation, said, "I saw you in the newspaper." Yeah, there were pictures. Yeah. And it happened to be you and me and Ed because we were basically in in the front of the of the, mm-hmm. of the protest. Christy, yeah. Alan okay. has his Alan has Alan? his hand raised. Alan, Alan, you need I to unmute. There you go. I mean, I was quite interesting with the not only the individuals that were tragically killed with with uh, no warnings on the track and falling off the onto the tracks. There's Transportation, the uh, didn't want to put those in, so they would cost too much. And had they put those in, none of this would have happened in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and then the other thing that uh, astounded me was how a, the ACLU um, sided against us against blind people regarding uh regarding the um descriptive video and saying that uh no blind people didn't need video description because that was an infringement on the rights of people making the movies and make, doing the programming and how it would infringe upon their rights. I mean, if, if a person was of color or, or had some other kind of, you know, um, extenuating factor, can you imagine ACLU going against those kinds of situations? 
that just astounded me that ACLU would be saying, oh, no, blind people don't need to have those rights. And I look at um, 1988, between 1988, 1990, and then 1993 and 1994 are some banner years for kind of changes that were were made. And so I liked that it said new opportunities because it really did, we did open up a lot of opportunities. Uh, So any hands? Christy, we have a hand that iPhone, I'm not sure who that is, but please unmute. Hi, this is uh, Chris Bell. I'm sorry, I should have renamed myself. I just wanted to say um, that uh, hi, thank you. Hi, Feldblum was an attorney with the AIDS Project on ACLU, and she worked extensively on the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1989 and 1990. So I don't know who at the ACLU was was against captioning videos, but it certainly didn't didn't represent uh, all of ACLU, or certainly not in uh, 1989 or 1990. So I just wanted to, to correct that. I, I will say one other thing that I'm I'm glad to hear about the protests, but I feel like ACB is far too um, passive on some issues today that we ought to be protesting uh, some things like a lack of accessible pedestrian signals and a lack of accessible yeah. currency. And, uh, you know, I know there was a protest in the past and I know why. And I hope at some point we protest again for some of these things because I think writing letters is fine, but it's not enough. But I, I agree. Sense. I agree. Thanks. I think we need to uh, put ourselves more um, out in the forefront. Thank you, Chris. Um, and it was an actual position of ACLU to be uh, uh, in not in favor of descriptive video. So okay, we have another. I'm sorry, Christy. We have another hand, area code 518. Please unmute and identify yourself. This is Mary Beth apologizing for being late. Um, two things. Um, one that, that my, my question would be, I was, I didn't like that ACLU thing either. I thought, wow, that's kind of hypocritical, except that when you think about it, who has more money? A bunch of blind people or all the, all the TV and movie people and and guess who wins my actually my my question would be i wonder what the aclu says about it now whether yeah. they they're hanging consistent with the you know with their their um stated position back in the 1990s and just having come from a whole a, a giant street with no pedestrian signals on it and erratic traffic i I vote with Chris. I'm, I'll, 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 I'll go. You know? Me too. <laughs> but I, but I, yeah, accessible pedestrian signals are huge. And, and, yeah. and the other thing is that accessible pedestrian signals that have poles that are next to the crosswalk until, instead of like 10 feet away, like one of them in my, in my area. So thank you. Thank you, Mary Beth. Thanks a whole bunch. This is Anthony to uh-huh. me. Um, no, not right this moment. Um, to me, the currency is just 
uh, it's disgraceful. They've been promising, and then they throw these machines at us like that'll make it. Then they don't have to do it. And I just think, um, and there's some very good apps now for identifying currency. But even so, other countries have accessible currency. Countries with a lot less resources than we have. And why should we go? Right. And why should we go? Why should we have to take that extra step? And those, you know, those, those things that we got never worked. I, I, you know, we were supposed to understand how to work those. And I don't know. I don't, I wonder who uses those currency identifiers that we were given. Um, I don't even know where mine is. I just. Occasionally, I have one and I occasionally use it, but I use my, I use cash reader on my phone because it's more convenient. It's faster. It's, you know, it's right there. Yeah. I never even, I couldn't figure out how to use it. Beth has her you know, Go ahead. What? Beth Larry? has her hand up. Oh, Beth? go ahead, Beth. Um. I think uh, audio pedestrian signals are huge. We've had a big fight to have them in, in especially Albuquerque, because um, we do have a lot of foreign people that uh, that come in. You know, we're right close. We're a border state, and they drive like they do in their country. I'll tell you what. And um, and I think the audio pedestrian signals would be a great benefit to people there there have been a lot of blind people killed in uh, Albuquerque and I do use my currency reader by the way um it's very easy to use but I think that we should go ahead and have a braille currency like other like other countries or different size uh like yeah or different size something like I I went I was able to uh identify um the 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 british um system in the oh Europe. yes me too yeah when i went to europe that was actually pretty cool to be able to know what my money was and then just not even have to ask anyone and some of the british coins have different shapes on them and stuff like that they're really cool when i was in costa rica a couple of years ago um, they made a big point of showing me that I was, we were on a cruise and they made a big point of showing me the money. I think I still have it. Their bills are different sizes. They're different shapes. Some have the corners cut off. I mean, there's beyond using any kind of symbols on the bill. There's different, there's other ways to do it. And they have been really creative in how they, um, you know, how they, how they manage that. Yeah, this is Chris. I just want to say this isn't something we're asking for. We have a legal right to it because we yes. have a D.C. Circuit opinion about from about 11 years ago that says we have a right to accessible currency. But the uh, the federal government under several administrations uh, uh, have just not uh, done it. And uh, in fact, there's been some discussion about having a, a rally about this issue and connecting it with the uh, Harriet Tubman on a $20 bill uh, issue uh, during the legislative seminar. It's not for me to, to say whether it'll happen, but it, I've been involved with discussions about it. And, uh, you know, I think it needs to happen. It's ridiculous. I mean, we have the right, it's been established, and yet the federal government is just uh, basically saying no. 
You know, I wonder um, in in our lifetime. You know, I'm I'm 68 years old. In my lifetime, am I going to experience accessible currency in my lifetime? That's pretty sad. I sure hope so. Yeah, Christy, it's, we have another hand. Uh, okay. Juan, Juan Medina. Okay, go ahead, Juan. Hello, how are you? Great. Hope you're doing well. I'm I'm doing good, thank you. Just very quickly, um, um, in Mexico, um, because I have family out there, mm-hmm. um, they have their currency is is different as well. Like the the pesos, they use pesos over there. So the um the coins and the um <clears throat> what is it called? The bills, like the the currency, the, uh-huh. Yeah, the actual bills, they're different sizes as well. And I think that's really cool. And I wish here in the U.S. they had that option. I think it would be a little easier or with some type of marking. Because I heard that that some, I think some countries or maybe I'm wrong, but they have like little diff- um, ways to identify for the blind people. Um, yeah, and different uh, texture. Right. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Different texture to them. So I, I wish, I wish here in the U.S. they had something like that. Yeah. So, um, so, so again, thank you, Juan, and thank you, everyone, for your comments. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, in in thinking about uh, between 1989 and 1995, um, uh, Christy, you have another hand. Sorry, I don't mean to keep interrupting. Oh, no, no, you. no. Go ahead, Mary Beth. Go ahead, please, Mary Beth. And then I'll make my comment. Okay. No, actually, if you want to make your point, because I was just going to talk about eighty-nine to ninety-five. So why don't you go first, and then I'll okay. go. Okay. Okay. So what I wanted to say is that um, in in looking at the ADA, um, the ACB was uh, pretty active in um, in working again, working from within, as, as is our philosophy, um, working with uh, the makers, the movers and shakers of the ADA. And the position of the NFB was that they didn't even understand why we needed the ADA because it wasn't really going to help blind people. It was really only going to help people with other disabilities. And uh, and so there was really no need for it. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's not how NFB feels now. And, and it was a, a pretty new, I mean, it was a new and innovative idea. Um, but uh, again, that's within the keeping of letting the blind uh, keep to themselves and not co-aligning with other people, coalescing with other with other peoples, um, and looking at the ADA today, uh, you know, thirty-one years later. Three. Mute comma. Currently unmuted comma. Alt plus A. Somebody's uh, is talking. Um, so. Comma. So I just wanted to say that 
I, I found that quite interesting to, to see the different positions of the ACB and the NFB regarding the ADA. And it would be interesting to have a discussion of uh, the views of ACB and NFB then and now. That would be a, a pretty interesting discussion. So this is Chris Bell, and I was I was one of the lawyers that helped to draft the ADA, and I was uh-huh. a member of ACB, and I was working at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission at the time for Commissioner Evan Kemp, who was himself a person with a disability. And he was the disability advisor for George Bush's campaign, and he got George Bush during his acceptance speech at the Republican convention to actually come out in favor of the enactment of an Americans with Disabilities Act. And uh, the Gallup poll, the Gallup survey people did a poll and discovered that uh, half of George Bush's margin of victory was due to folks with disabilities voting for him because of that pledge. And that that uh, information, uh, Evan Kemp circulated among the Congress to say, hey, you know, disabled folks vote and our votes matter. Um, And, you know, Bush was pretty good uh, about it. He arranged uh, he did a meeting with representatives of the disability community uh, before he was formally inaugurated. This was in uh, November, December of 1988. It was a meeting that Evan Kemp uh, arranged, and I was there, and a bunch of people were there, a bunch, several blind people, but mostly people with other disabilities. And it was kind of funny because I walked in the room, and I had some vision then, and I was trying to figure out where to sit because I couldn't really see very well. The only seat I could see was a red chair, so I sat in the red chair, <laughs> and the Secret Service came over and said, excuse me, that's for the president. I said, <laughs> so so I, I just moved one seat over, so I sat next to Bush. But, uh, uh, you know, Bush was really good on it. And there were a lot of Republicans that were against it, um, including Bush's chief of staff. Um, And uh, Bush had a meeting with Harkin. And uh, Bush told Harkin uh, that he would do whatever was necessary to make sure that the ADA passed. And he he tasked his uh, his attorney, the attorney at the White House, who's a guy by the name of C. Boyd and Gray, and said, you know, you're my point man on this, uh, Boyden, you know, make, make sure this happens. And so whenever we had a problem with uh, either within the administration uh, or <clears throat> within the Republican Party, we, we would, Evan would call Boyden Gray and say, hey, you know, <laughs> fix this. And he would. Um, so, you know, without, without Bush and without Dick Thornburg, who was attorney general at the time, um, you know, we would have been up a creek without a paddle. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, having been involved in the process, George Bush and Boyd and Gray and, and Dick Thornburg were, were heroes. We wouldn't have gotten it. And in fact, it was the Democratic uh, uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives who wouldn't bring the ADA to the floor uh, for a vote. I think he was from the state of Washington. I'm blanking on his name. Um, Oh, Tom, somebody uh, probably remembered eventually. But uh, of anyway, after the call. <laughs> yeah, after the call. But anyway, he, he thought the ADA was a, a terrible thing for the Democrats. And uh, he thought we'd uh, it, it would cost the Democrats votes. So he wouldn't bring it to the floor of the House for vote. And so what happened is uh, people in uh, the state of Washington picketed his offices. 
And so his, uh, his chief of staff and disability called me and said, you know, what do we got to do to stop the picketing? I said, that's easy. Bring the ADA to the floor of the house. Um, and so he did, but, uh, I don't take any credit for that. I, I was just the recipient of the call and tell him it's pretty obvious what he had to do. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, anyway, I'll shut up. That's why. That's pretty awesome. Thank you, Chris. And Mary Beth, sure. you had something you wanted to say. I think that, you know, a lot of things, you know, in the, in the 89 to 95, a lot of things became enacted, but, but what we're facing and what we faced really since then um, is the whole implementation process. Yes. And it's one thing, and it's a good thing to have something, you know, on a piece of paper. This is this is against the law. But then, you know, what what we're um, stuck with now, in a lot of ways, um, you know, certainly we need we need new and different laws and all that. But but um, if we look back. Um, I think it's safe to say that um, many of the laws that have already been uh, enacted really haven't been implemented fully. And um, that, you know, that I, it'd be interesting now. I don't I, I don't know if anybody could could get a huge vote on the whole disability thing, because because times are a little different now. I'm not so sure that that would, that that would fly. I thought that, that, you know, that whole thing about, okay, I'm going to come forth for, you know, for people with with disabilities. I don't know if if that would fly right now. And I thought that was an interesting comment that you made, Chris, you know, about that. But I think that what the, the, the thing that we have now is we have a lot, we have, we have paper and we need more paper, but what we also need is, is implementation. Thank right, you. but my my point of that is, and this is not to blame the victim, but um, people have to file charges. So let's put it this way: yes. all of these civil rights laws are built on the assumption that people will make complaints, and that's how the law will be implemented. Um, the implementation by federal agencies like the U.S. Department of Justice and the EEOC. Congress never fully staffs civil rights agencies, just like Congress doesn't. Uh, pay for all of special education, which it promised to do um, in 94142. So it's really up to individuals who are discriminated against to step up and, and file complaints and file charges. And I understand that that's hard. It, I mean, it's hard to know what to say and who to send it to. And it's also hard if you're employed, for example, and you want to you feel like you've been discriminated against by your boss, but you don't want to be fired, even though that would be illegal. You, you know, so it's all of this is hard, but really the truth is that the enforcement of the ADA lies on our backs and, uh, and mostly on our backs. I mean, the, I can tell you that the EOC gets, you know, 100,000 complaints, not a, just under the ADA, but they might file 300 or 400 lawsuits throughout the country in one year and on all the statutes they enforce. There's no way in hell that that's going to implement the employment provisions of the ADA. So it really relies on uh, private parties to do it. And that's why Congress put damages in the 1990 Civil Rights Act, because they knew that people, attorneys weren't taking cases just for back pay and and attorney's fees. So they threw in damages to uh, try to incentivize private attorneys to be willing to take these lawsuits to enforce the law. 
Um, we have a couple of hands. Um, we have Alan. Okay, Alan. Another thing that uh, the book stressed that a lot of the blind are still not advocating for themselves, and that's probably one of them to anything that we need, such as employment, education, and those kind of things. We're going to have to really be more what, proactive, and, uh, and so to speak. Right. Sue Avedar made that comment. Yes, she did. Mm-hmm. That was that was uh, something that that I I said. Wait, who said that? <laughs> I would need to go back and, yes. and look at that. Thank you, Ellen. It's true. It's really true. We complain and we grumble, but what are we actually going to do about it? And, and and putting our our putting our actions where our grumbling is. I think and, another thing that the book pointed out also uh, that some of the writers pointed out that. Uh, we a lot of times don't take the, uh, the time to do things for ourselves that we want others to do for us. Yeah. And that's another setback that we, we constantly face. Sense of entitlement. And, 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 and thank you for pointing that out, Alan, because I, this is what worries me, um, is that our organization don't grow because people don't want to get involved and they don't realize what we have is because of blood, sweat, and tears. Okay. We have Beth. Beth, Beth? please go ahead. I was going to say that too, that um, sometimes in some of these civil rights cases, like in my case, I mean, it took me getting involved with the national office to, uh, because no attorney here would take that kind of case. Not even our disability rights uh, people seem that interested. And um, and for like people trying to get out of, I was trying to get out of a, a rehab facility that I really didn't need to be in. And uh there was some people that sell Medicaid dollars and they promised you empty promises and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it took me getting involved with the national office because our disability rights people weren't interested. And some of our AFP people told me, um, well, if you go with disability rights of New Mexico, it's going to take you years because they don't take those kind of cases. They're more interested in students and in um, things like that than they are stuff of the elderly. And, and well, I don't consider myself really elderly, but uh, with stuff that they should be interested in, with the visually visually impaired and uh, other people like that, they're more interested in the kind of cases that I guess that would bring them notoriety or whatever, you know, and they. And there's no attorneys that'll take these cases. It was just by chance that I found a paralegal in Texas that would help me uh, do a lot of the research, and, and we were able to send a lot of this stuff to the national office. But um, there's a lot of blind people in the same positions that I was in. And, and Beth, also, did you, did you prevail? Yes, I did. Yes, thank, I did. Thank, thank God. And and also there's a lot of like speakers that speak other languages that it makes it harder 
to find an attorney or, or a paralegal or somebody like that that would help them with, with stuff like this. And um, I don't know, in my case, I just felt like people weren't that interested. Not even the ombudsman had resources to, oh, I don't know how to help you, you know. Uh, and they just, either they weren't interested because it wasn't going to bring money for them or I don't know what the deal was, but um, I know that they said, you know, you don't know how many blind people or how many, how many people are in that position. And we, st- and and we still I, don't, and to this day, probably more than we know. Exactly, and I think that uh, I would be willing to go to a rally for a lot of these protests because there's a lot of these there's a lot of these issues that need to be brought to the forefront, um, such as again, like the audio pedestrian signals and uh, and things like that. That um, another thing. Okay, they say you're not supposed to discriminate against housing. Um, what I found is that in looking for housing, they say. They're all enthused to rent to you till you show up on the site to look at the apartment. And then, uh, you know, two days later or a day later, they call you back and they say, guess what? It's already been filled up. I'm so sorry. Someone showed up with the money in hand and blah, blah. And you're like, okay, whatever. And this is a, that's, that's a very important point. And, and, you know, the way civil rights organizations deal with that, is they they bring in somebody who's disabled and somebody who's not on the same day and they they fill out the same application with the same information about you know income and where you lived in the past and all that stuff and so when the when the the housing owner takes the non-disabled person that's proof positive discrimination but the Um, point is people have to be we're going to see that Chris, yeah. I'm going to interrupt for just a minute because we have a hand raised at somebody okay. that hasn't spoken. Oh, so sorry, my apologies. Up. You're okay. Chris Gray, please go ahead. Oh, yay. Good morning, Chris. I think we hear you. No, we don't. Zoom meeting. Meeting tools. Chris, window. you're muted. Yeah. You are muted, Doc. You're still muted, Chris. You're muted. No, he's not. He is muted. He, he oh. is, but Jaws is not. That's his Jaws. Oh, yeah, no, that's his Jaws. Correct. He's still muted. I don't know why I'm muted. That doesn't make any sense to me. Now you're good. Now you're good. <laughs> now you're good. Now you're good. Okay. Yep. I just wanted to say, you know, it, it is so very important. And now lowered alert that we have organizations like ACB and even like NFB. You know, whatever. But the, the point is, even in something as major as the accessible currency case, which hopefully one of these days will bear fruit, we won, but <laughs> we haven't gotten much out of it yet. Right. But, you know, during that litigation, a lot, well, a fair amount of the um, conversation brought up by the government was, well, how many people do you really represent? Are we going to change everything in in the country about our money for, you know, a couple thousand people? And, uh, 
you know, had we been bigger and stronger, that could not have come up as much, and it could come up another time. Yeah, it's like, you know, when we were negotiating, um, when I was employed, thank goodness I'm not anymore. <laughs> Yay, <laughs> retirement. Um, you know, you we, would, we would, uh, you, you're on not muted. Who's whistling for whatever your pet is? Um, mute, please. Thank you. Um, so, you know, people, we would have a low membership rate. And people really do not understand that the higher your membership, the more people you speak for, um, the, the, the more clout we have. Um, and it's not enough to say we represent however many people. It's in truth. Where are, where is your, where are your membership roles? Where's your, where is your book that shows all your members? If you say you have a thousand members and you only have a hundred, um, that just speaks to uh, embellishment and takes away um, integrity and credibility. And so we really need to address true membership and why I believe that everyone who is has a disability should belong to ought to belong to an organization that, uh, you know, is involved with whatever their disability is um, uh, in general or um, in particular, which is why I'm so of the belief that if you're blind, you need to belong to an organization. If you're visually impaired, you need to belong to an organization. Okay, Christy. Uh, Chris has his hand up, and you have about fifteen minutes. Okay, thank you. So I, I just wanted to add on top of on top of that, um, the you'll be pers- we we will be perceived as more numerous and more powerful to the extent we make our voices heard. For example, yes. um, it's well understood in Congress by by members of Congress that every letter they get or every email they get from one person represents the thinking of more than 10 other constituents because they know that there's only a small percentage of people that actually contact their members, but they realize that 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 one person represents many others. So even if we can't show in our books that we have 100,000 members, if we're more active uh, in contacting whether it's local or county or state or whatever it is, we will be perceived as more powerful because, as the old cliche goes, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. We have to be squeaky wheels. We don't have to be the largest organization in the world, but we have to make noise. Right. We can be effective without being, regardless as to whether we're the largest or not. And, and again, that's putting our putting our brawn where our grumbling is, making solution-focused um, grumblings. Any other hands? Yes, Debbie. Debbie? Audio now unmuted. 
shifting a little bit, uh, one of the things that was interesting for me in Chapter 11 was the... Uh, Chapter 10? uh, 10, yes. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Was the attempts, uh, some more successful than others, for agencies to work together. Um, I was was surprised that at the times when they... It wasn't successful, um, and I think the Denver Convention in 1990, there was an incident um, that that made it clear that people weren't willing to work together um, when there was some recording going on when they had been asked not to. And um, but but that's that's something that I think we could work on is is the agencies, and we're probably doing way better with that these days than back then. Is Agencies representing various disabilities working together. Right. The, the incident you're talking about is when uh, NAC was holding a meeting, the National Accreditation Council, and they were holding a meeting, and um, the NFB uh, somehow got 10 tickets. Um, it was yes. a meeting, invitation-only meeting, yes. and they came in with recording equipment, they were asked to leave and one person stayed and was, and, and, and to me, this really is irritating and, and taking advantage of people that the person knew that because people couldn't see mm-hmm. that he could get by with holding the microphone in front of people and recording. Mm-hmm. And when he, when he got, when he got caught, and the microphone was, you know, brushed away, yanked away. Um, he accused um, Mac of uh, of assaulting him, right? And 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 he was taken away. And and and, and uh, fortunately, the the guy Steve, I don't know his last name, can't remember, but he got uh, charged with with something because he shouldn't have been. Um, basically spying. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I mean, uh, unfortunately, being involved on a union board, it, it gets ugly. It it really gets ugly sometimes being involved in organizations because of the intensity of, of personalities and of beliefs and oppositional beliefs. Yes. Um, but it's ridiculous to um, it's ridiculous to deploy practices of deception, right? And that's what happened. Yeah, it comes back to bite you. Yeah, it does. It does. Was somebody going to say something? Thank you, Debbie. Sure. Yeah, uh, Mary Beth has her hand raised. Go ahead, Mary Beth. I think that one thing that we going forward you know, need to, to be very aware of is that, you know, as, as um, people are struggling harder and harder, groups are struggling harder and harder for, you know, representation, dollars, you know, uh, uh, that, that um, we have to be careful that we don't end up regressing, you know, um, from the things that we have that we don't, you know, end up essentially moving backwards and that, right. that, you know, that, that that's a, a possibility. 
And I, th- I think that it's a possibility that, you know, it's it's easy not to think of because we say, oh, we have, you know, this and this and this, that that we don't, you know, that we take a look and we and also that we prioritize. What are the things that are really important to us that we really need to have? Um, and not that we don't um, put the other ones out there, but to, to and I'm sure that, that, you know, we've done that to a certain extent, but that we need to, to uh, do it um, on a regular basis. What are the things, what are the rights and that we really need? And, and basically to make those things known and, um, and make our voices heard. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Chris Bell on left the meeting. Any other hands? Not right now. Okay. So, so you know, it, this is pretty exciting to me. And as I as I have said earlier, I have read this book before, and in reading it now, I have such a different perspective. When I read the book before, it was the first time I read it. And, and, you know, it, it, it kind of, in, in some ways it didn't make sense to me, but in living some of this history and reading it now, I'm like, oh, that's how that worked. Oh, that's why that happened. Um, again, I'm struck with um, why we have certain affiliates um, and, and, Reading people's names like Artis Bazin, who wrote something back in 1993 the in the in the in the Braille Forum um, about the Randolph Shepherd that that's been under attack over and over again when McDonald's tried to uh, to take it and, and now we have um, you know. Things that are happening again, like where I worked at Patton State Hospital, that should have been a BEP location, but it never was. And I uh, tried to fight for it to be, but I got nowhere. Um, You know, wasn't sure. And I think this is something that maybe could be um, even a workshop is... So you know something needs to be fixed. You know something needs to be changed. How do we, the the small fry, the the little, you know, peon, the little nobody, um, how do we Chris affect change? Meeting. I think that would be a good, um, a good seminar, webinar, discussion to get going. How do we, the, the small person, when we know something needs to be changed, how do we work to get that started? Um, so next week, we're going to be learning more. And it's going to, I said it was only going to take an hour to read chapter 10. I lied. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. Um, longer. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, but chapter okay. chapter eleven is going to take about two hours. Um, I, I speed read through it this morning. It is quite exciting. And after this, we have um, one more chapter, chapter twelve. And then um, after chapter twelve, I'm really endeavoring to invite all of the uh, past ACB presidents 
um, to come because I think that would be a, a very nice um, discussion after reading chapter 12 and um, hoping that we can then have a, um, a discussion about, you know, where do we go from here? What are our priorities? How do we, um, how do we affect change and how do we update um, ACB history? That's great. Yeah. Somebody needs to be working on the next 20 years, don't we? Correct. They are. Are they? Uh-huh. Oh, they good. are. <laughs> hey, Larry, you need to um, give me a buzz or email me. I got some stuff to, to okay, tell you. But that's, this is not a, the appropriate time because we're on the air. So thank you. Um, so anybody have any last comments about what we've discussed today? We have about two minutes. I was excited to hear the connection. The author, um, McGivern, you, you already mentioned that, but I did uh-huh. not know what the connection was between the authors of the book and you know the blind community. But uh-huh. um, that was the brother of um, Kathleen McGivern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let me quickly say that it's always fun for me to read these books two or three times because I come up with different perspectives as I read. Yeah. But it's also equally cool for me to come to this, these meetings because I joined in 2017. I knew a lot of the people, but I joined in 2017. So to hear comments from people who are at the meeting just like I am adds more and I learn more and I'm very grateful. Me too. And I hope those of you listening in ACB Media Land, come on aboard. Come and join us in the discussion next week. And I'd like to thank Larry Gassman for streaming and Andrea DeClotz for hosting and all of you who participated. And I look forward to seeing you next week as we read Chapter 11. And it thank is- you, Christy, for allowing me to host. And I, uh, I really uh, learned a lot today, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Christy, for doing this. Bye, Paul.